Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO, it's Zach Shiner, and we're coming into October of 2018, and we've got uh, lots of things on the horizon. We have Reanimate 6, January, this upcoming year, 2019. It is going to be off the hook, as usual. All of the best and brightest are back. We have Zaf Kasim with us today. How are you, Zaf? Hey, Zach. Great to be back on the show. So, Zaf, we're going to interview and we're going to talk in trauma and uh, Reboa here in just a second. But before we get there, again, Reanimate's coming. Going to be great. We're going to go to Paris next month and do a little course out there with Lionel. We're going to have a course in Rome next uh, spring in April. So, lots of things on the horizon. But today, we're going to talk about Reboa and we're going to talk about the kind of the year of controversy. And wouldn't you say that, Zaf? Oh, yeah, for sure. There's uh, been a lot of new research. There's been a lot of, uh, shall we say, conflicting statements that have come out. Um, and so there's a lot to, to talk about. So why don't we just jump into this? Because I think this, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but we've got to bring up this ASEP uh, American College of Surgery um, paper that they wrote, Megan Brenner. Just tell us a little bit about what, what happened there. Yeah, sure. So a paper came out in January of this year, um, uh, which was a joint statement on the use of Reboa. And it was a joint statement between the American College of Surgeons, Committee on Trauma, and ASEP, uh, kind of outlining what uh, the quote-unquote experts felt was uh, best practice in utilization of Reboa. Um, and certainly it, it stirred a lot of emotions in a lot of people, uh, mainly because it came out as a fairly kind of prescriptive um, and limiting way to utilize Robo in terms of who could use it, in what circumstances, and what kind of training would be accepted for people to be able to utilize the procedure. Um, so certainly stirred a lot of emotions and comments from all sides. Yeah, so it basically said if you did not, if you, if you were either a surgeon or you were a critical care trained doc, those are the only two people that could do it. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So they said uh, as an emergency physician without critical care training, you should not be doing Reboa, which uh, both in my mind as well as in several other people's mind was not the right way to come about this. I mean, certainly having a statement was a good idea. Reboa is a fairly um, a rapidly evolving procedure, and we don't want um, it just to be brought out into clinical practice without some guidance. Uh, and so it's great to have a statement of sorts, but to, to make it so limiting to a certain subgroup of people, surgeons or uh, emergency physicians with critical care training and excluding everybody else um, is not the way to go about it. We have to understand that, you know, we're managing the sickest of the sick trauma patient. And that's always a team sport, and it's imperative that everybody um, involved in the management of that patient um, should be aware of any modality, including Reboa, that could potentially, um, you know, save the life of that patient. And so if a, if a system, if a trauma system decides to implement Reboa, then they should encourage um, utilization and training amongst those key stakeholders that are likely to be faced with that patient. Right. So we're talking emergency room doctors. I mean, I agree with you. We've got to train. We've got to understand the process before we just jump into it. 
But uh, I do think it is a bit much to just make a blanket statement like that, especially when you're talking about something that, you know, an ER physician can do a thoracotomy. So you're mm-hmm. you're saying, okay, I, you can open up their chest, you can avoid the phrenic nerve, you can put a, a purse string, you know, suture through the heart, but access the femoral artery and put a catheter up? No. It does seem like there's a, a, a disconnect there. Yeah, you're perfectly right. I mean, if you look at emergency medicine curricula around the world, you'll see that all these rarely performed but life-saving or limb-saving procedures are part of the curriculum pretty much worldwide. And so why shouldn't Reboa become part of that um, with appropriate training and in the appropriate circumstance? Okay, so since that statement, what's happened? So a lot of people um, were up in arms about it. You'll see in the journal that published this, there were two... Uh, um, letters to the editor from uh, pretty prominent people. It was a group of emergency physicians out of uh, North Carolina that wrote in. Uh, uh, Joe DeBose and uh, Todd Rasmussen, amongst others, wrote a letter. Uh, Joe DeBose and Colonel Rasmussen. Bill Teeter and I wrote a letter that was published in the Annals recently about it um, as well. And uh, most importantly, I think, there was a big social media storm about this, and um, a lot of emergency physicians uh, kind of came back at the leadership, saying, "You know, this is this is uh, premature, inappropriate, not well thought out." And that actually caught you know uh, caught a lot of people's attention. Specifically, the president of ASEP, uh, Paul Cavella, who um, I give great kudos to to kind of take this to task and um, readdress this, relooked at it, and actually. Uh, found grounds that this should now be revised. And so currently that this statement is in the process of being relooked at and likely will be revised um, in the next several months. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Okay, so that's that. Um, let's move on a little bit. What's new? What's new in Reboa? What do we what do we have to know in 2018 that we didn't know? We've had several episodes on Reboa, but I just want to know from your idea, the expert, uh, what's changed? Yeah, there's a couple of things that have come out. Um, it's certainly the aorta registry, which is the largest um, prospective observational trial here in the United States, looking at Reboa, comparing it to um, thoracotomy done for torso hemorrhage, um, has updated its results. This was uh, published earlier this year, um, almost 300 patients included now, um, and shows, again, similar to um, the prior uh, paper that was published that overall survival rates are pretty similar between the two procedures. But they did an interesting thing. They looked at three subgroups of patients. They looked at people who arrived to the hospital uh, in traumatic arrest, so they'd arrested in the field. Um, and they looked at patients who uh, were who came with vital signs but then arrested in the emergency department and had uh, either procedure done. And both of those groups fared very poorly with either procedure, really poor outcomes. But then they looked at a group that was in profound hemorrhagic shock um, and would die unless an immediate procedure like Rabo or thoracotomy was done on them. And so that group, that group, that group where Rabo was used proactively before the patient lost vital signs showed dramatic survival benefits uh, compared to thoracotomy um, up in the 20% range. Um, and so it becomes clear that, uh, you know, this tool seems to be best targeted at those people who are in profound hemorrhagic shock um, from trauma or non-trauma even. Um, and, and that's really perhaps where we should be targeting the utilization of this device. 
Um, we've also got more data looking at the importance, um, and this is something that we uh, really emphasize on reanimate as well as other sites, um, that early vascular access is really key. Um, and trying to get that early can have a significant survival advantage. Uh, our friends from Japan recently published a paper that uh, shows a, a significant worsening of outcomes for every about 10 minutes delay in being able to get a common femoral arterial access. And so really getting that access early in patients you think might benefit from endovascular therapies such as Reboa um, is, is critical. Yeah, I saw that paper, the Journal of Trauma um, just yeah, came out. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, so early access, no-brainer, right? I mean, like, this is not yeah. rocket science. If you get the arterial access faster, then you are going to have your catheter and you're going to have better outcomes. Uh, I think this also sort of lends itself back to the previous discussion in that emergency physicians are really good at getting access, and we're good at yeah. using the ultrasound machine. And we may not need to do a cut down on everyone to get this access to the femoral artery, but we can also learn how to do that as well as... Uh, Lionel does out in the field in Paris. So we, I think that there is something to be said about the the skill set of people who are doing this. You, you need to be good at Thanks. getting femoral artery access. Yeah, exactly right. And that's um, one of the key skills that we can bring to the game. You know, where when compared to the surgical training curriculum, the emergency medicine curriculum is leaps and bounds ahead in terms of ultrasound training. And I think that's critical that, A, you try and, try and identify the CFA segment, which, as you know, is a short segment, um, and get that in uh, efficiently and rapidly. Um, and that's a, a real key to kind of getting these kinds of procedures done. Very cool. Okay, so uh, anything else from the just recent literature? It looks like we're kind of doing the same thing, zone one for most patients. Uh, how about uh, partial Reboa? Is that in vogue or are we moving away from that? Yeah, no, I think that's really the way forward, uh, Zach, because uh, we know the great limitation of complete occlusion with Reboa, and that's, um, that's the ischemic time and the ischemic burden that happens, especially at zone one. Um, and uh, so partial robo is, is really going to be the way forward. We're seeing great animal um, data about this. Uh, the uh, guys out of UC Davis and specifically Austin Johnson, Tim Williams, those folk are, are really uh, pushing the envelope in terms of getting uh, more animal data of use of uh, and benefit of partial roboa and techniques to do that. And already this is starting to come into clinical practice. Several people are using different techniques to ensure um, they're able to gauge kind of the pressure above and below the balloon. Um, and I think if uh, once we get more human data, it will likely mirror the animal data where you can have the balloon up for a significantly longer amount of time without that profound ischemic burden um, on those vital organs. And so... Uh, not only will they hopefully be able to get through their index operation, but they won't suffer the same degree of multi-system organ dysfunction that we see when these patients come to the unit after prolonged inflation. Um, so right now, a lot of people are kind of talking about inflating the balloon completely for 10 to 15 minutes um, and then uh, using uh, some form of distal transducer as well to measure distal pressure and then bring the balloon down in tiny increments to allow that, that small amount of flow to those vital organs. 
Now, Austin, I know his model there in at UC Davis, they've got this, you know, artificial thing where they've actually got a clamp that they can put on the, the vessel, not like the catheter that we have. And now new catheters may improve this, but as of right now, we still have this like wind socking thing, right? We have to, when we l let the balloon down, there's not a nice linear decline of or increase in flow uh, related to that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And it kind of goes back to the um, the way the balloon is. So it's a compliant balloon. So different volumes uh, taken out certainly change the contour of the balloon in different ways. And so people think that X amount out means an X amount of change, but it's really very different than that. And so, um, and that's, that's kind of part of the difficulty in being able to do this um, well, because, um, because people uh, may not appreciate that change in uh, velocity that happens around the balloon when you let even tiny increments of volume out of it. So what I'm hearing is you, you put the catheter in, you put the balloon up, you get arterial pressure tracings both above and below, you leave it up for 10 to 15 minutes, and then you start letting it down. And what are you using as your goals of pressure above and below? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it still might be nuanced to, and dependent on different patients um, uh, and what they'll tolerate. Uh, so, you know, you can certainly go back to your permissive hypertension or hypotension model above the balloon and bringing your uh, systolic, say, down to 90 or something like that to allow uh, reasonable kind of perfusion above the balloon um, and then using much smaller pressures below the balloon to ensure flow to the distal organs because the animal data that's out there shows that even small amounts of flow to the kidneys and the gut is enough to um, kind of prolong the uh, um, safe ischemic time. And so you don't need a, a profound pressure below the balloon, um, at least from the data that we have available to, to ensure that. And then also the potassium concerns. Is that is that real? And when we have partial bowel, I'm assuming that we can we can negate some of that that concern about having some big jump in potassium once we let the flows down or flows up. Yeah, I, guess very, I should say. Yeah, very much so. I mean, uh, we uh, you know with the complete occlusion, it was very much like um, akin to the old um, cross clamps or uh, even like a crush syndrome that you see in people who are in major disasters or something like that. As soon as you suddenly let go after prolonged occlusion, there's a big washout of toxic metabolites, in particular um, potassium that uh, more so the anesthesiologist or the intensivist really needs to be wary about um, at the time of balloon deflation, but that can certainly um, create a profound um, problem uh, when the balloon is let down unless you anticipate it. And so judicious use of things like calcium and bicarb at the time or uh, a time of resuscitation and balloon deflation is key. Um, but I think, yeah, with the more gentle um, flows uh, uh, and release of pressure that you get with partial, um, you may be able to ameliorate that a little bit too. All right. I want to, I want to, uh, I'm just thinking here, I want to change a little bit of a, to throw you a little curveball here. Now, I want to talk mm -hmm. to you as not just the expert on Reboa, Zaf, I want to talk to you as a resuscitationist and maybe ask you a question that, that I've been sort of wrestling with and, and in several of my talks have, have kind of given my opinion on. But in these situations, 
in these trauma patients, you're at an academic center. What do you view the value added of the ER doc? Like, what's our role in the major trauma? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, the, uh, for example, at our setup, where it's the emergency physicians and with my resident, we're uh, tasked uh, primarily with managing the airway in our most severe trauma patients. Um, but I think there's a, a, a big role to be said of maintaining team leadership as well. Um, and whether it's us doing the procedure, and certainly that might be the case, so we could be in the proceduralist role if uh, we're trained to do so, especially in something relatively newer like Reboa, so we could take over that role um, and do the procedure. But the other thing is, um, you know, especially with a high adrenaline situation like a, a trauma resuscitation, and then on top of that, you're doing a procedure that you may not have done for several months before or even maybe for the first time. That proceduralist becomes extremely task-focused um, and can certainly lose sight of the resuscitation of the trauma patient as a whole. Um, and we see this um, as a cause of error um, in some of the cases that have been QI'd on the use of uh, where Rebo has been implemented. Often the most senior person, which may be the trauma surgeon at a level one trauma center, ends up putting the balloon in because they're the only one trained to do so. And then they lose track of time. They lose track of the what's been done in terms of the resuscitation. And that's really where a second senior physician, like the emergency physician, can kind of step up and take over that role and become the trauma team leader. I so love how you said that because I, I could not agree more, is that you need a trauma doc, you need a surgeon, and then you need a resuscitationist. Exactly, yeah. And we can it's... be the resuscitationist in that room. So in my place, you know, we have no residents, no fellows. It's, it's myself and a trauma surgeon. And the trauma surgeon gets sucked into that left side of the chest, rightfully yeah. so. Like that's, yeah. they're, they're like trying to figure out, are they going to go to the OR? What do they need to manage? Where is it bleeding? And they really lose sight. Um, just be, not because they're deficient. It's just because they got stuff going on. And so exactly. in our in our place, I love to do the intubation as soon as I can. If they need a right-sided chest tube, I'll run down on, on the way down. But very quickly, I establish myself in that right lower groin, get the arterial access, just like the Japanese paper said, you know, right this month, and then get a femoral access as well. And from there, my opinion is that we can be the ultimate resuscitationist. We can put in a reboa catheter if you needed to, and then you can manage the massive transfusion. You can manage the one-to-one-to-one. You can manage the TXA if you want to give it. You can tell the nurses to stop giving the normal saline that they, it seems like we can't unavoidably give. And uh, you can actually be a real value to that trauma patient, not just an extra body in the room. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's you know, there's no reason for us to kind of just step back once the airway is kind of taken care of. Um, you know, very, uh, you know, there's several papers that have shown that emergency physician uh, t- trauma team leaders are just as effective as surgeon trauma team leaders. And uh, essentially, this is what we're trained to do. Um, and, mo- and, and, you know, Rabo is just one procedure, but you're quite right. A thoracotomy similarly just pulls that surgeon in, they lose track of time, they lose situational awareness. And so we're in a good position if we then move ourselves to the bottom of the bed um, to keep track of the resuscitation, also keep track of time, saying, hey, look, you've been trying to get access to that femoral artery for 10 minutes now, we got to go. 
um, you know, God to do something different. And that's, uh, and that's one of the key roles of the uh, resuscitationist team leader. And I think we're ideal, um, in an ideal position to be uh, doing that. Yeah, we, we talk about in cardiac arrest how, like, how we like uh, early arterial access, early arterial tracings, and how we can manage resuscitation. Well, if you believe in the permissive hypotensive model, uh, or however you want to name that, if you want to name it just normal tensive, whether you do a map of 50 or a map of 65 or, or, or something higher if you have a head injury, it is better if you have an art line in. And actually, when I've gone through the literature on this and looked back through the permissive hypotension articles, you see that one rarely do the patients actually separate themselves. So when they give, when they try and maintain a map of 50 versus a map of 65, they actually turn out to have the same map regardless of what they do. The body has a lot of compensation on its own. But all those studies are being done with peripheral blood pressure cuffs. And that is just horribly inaccurate. Not to mention you can't tell these small times when they do have um, when their blood pressure drops significantly lower, which we know is a problem, problem with glycocalyx dysfunction and the problem with, you know, um, the blood brain barrier and all, all this stuff that's associated with hemorrhagic shock. And so I feel like for us to get an art line in a sick trauma patient is probably more important even than the cardiac arrest art line. And so, uh, for us to like kind of own that right lower groin, get the art line in early no matter what, that just seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, I agree totally. It's, uh, you know, that's the super sick trauma patient, the super sick septic shock patient. There's no reason, you know, if, you're, if the patient needs an art line, go ahead and put it in the uh, common femoral artery and, and get a, uh, a good reading. Uh, Josh Farkas did a great post recently about the role of femoral arterial lines and, uh, and kind of highlights the, the benefit of having that central arterial um, pressure monitoring for a variety of situations. Um, and so I agree with you. Get uh, facile at being able to do that and step up and do it once you've uh, taken care of the other things and get to that groin and uh, place your arterial line. All right. So last thing, um, we now have a Reboa catheter in. The patient's map is, you know, maintaining at 50 uh, with the Reboa balloon up. They want to go to the OR. Do you follow them? What do you do, Zaf? Do you, do you tell the anesthesiologist about it? How do, you, how do you maintain or maybe educate what's going on to all the team that's up in the OR? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, first and foremost, hopefully that education has happened well before that first Reboa catheter goes in. Uh, but I think it's critical that the um, anesthesiologist uh, becomes well aware of it. Um, and I wrote about this recently. Uh, too, that it becomes uh, challenging sometimes for the anesthesiologist who's not aware of this to remember sometimes that the um, balloon is in because it's covered by a drape. It's not that typical um, aortic cross clamp in an open chest that you can visually see. And so that lack of visual stimulation um, that can uh, serve, uh, you know, it's as a poor reminder that the balloon is up. And so it's imperative that they are aware that the balloon is there. And so, you know, that really depends on communication. Um, one of the models we used at, at Christiana when I was there is that the uh, nurse and the documenting nurse um, in the trauma room hands off to the OR nurse who maintains kind of balloon time and informs the anesthesiologist that the balloon is up for X amount of time so that they're aware. And then continuously over the next 15 minutes, every 15 minutes, 
um, reminds uh, the surgeon and the anesthesiologist that the balloon is still up. Um, and so just so that they're aware and they can prepare and limit balloon times overall. Uh, so there has to be some mechanism at your facility for um, for doing that. Whether you go up yourself and whether there's scope to do that, that might be a way and you might be in charge of the balloon. Whether they designate a, another anesthesiologist or maybe even the intensivist to come in and help out with uh, just balloon management. Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can go about that, but I think there needs to be some way to make sure that somebody's uh, remembering and in charge of uh, balloon. Yeah, totally. So you've got to make sure that you've got some mechanism to to not have that thing get lost because that will really right. ruin your program. All right, so let's wrap, sure. let's wrap this up today. We talked about a lot of good stuff, Zaf. We talked about um, Reboa. We talked about you put it up 15, 20 minutes. You see if you can get your map maybe, let's say, above 65 you maintain mm -hmm. your map above 65, you can start thinking, okay, maybe I'm volume resuscitated. I can start partially letting this down. I want to continue to maintain that map above the catheter, above 65, but I want to wash out some of that stuff below. We're going to look for potassium, frequent VBGs to maybe see what the potassium is. And then uh, be the resuscitationist. Be the resuscitationist to that right groin so that you can have arterial access, venous access, um, be the, in charge of the transfusion if you're at a hospital like myself where all personnel need to be fully vested. And that's about it. Make sure you check to make sure the, the catheter is known about in the OR and it can be released once it's the definitive hemostasis has occurred. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a great summary there. All right. And oh, last thing, ER, ER Reboa. That's the catheter you're using? Yeah, it's currently that's the only um, seven French device that's FDA approved in the United States. So I think that's become the most popularly used one. Okay. And the only thing time that I don't use that catheter, I like it a lot. I think there's a lot of advantages to it. But the stiffness of it does make it a problem for AAAs. So we tend to use still the traditional coda if we're going to put a catheter mm -hmm. above the AAA. Sure, yeah. All right, Zaf, again, great. Thanks for being on the show. We'll see you in January, if not earlier. And uh, it's all good, man. Joe DeBose is always also going to be here at Reanimate Six, so we'll have a full endovascular Reboa you know, superstars at at uh, in San Diego. Oh yeah, it's going to be awesome. All right, from uh, Edie Ekmo, this is Zach Shiner, Zaf Kossum, signing out. <laughs>